Um, I'm going to read something. Luke chapter 4, verse 17 says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, today as we gather around your word, around you, we remember your mission that we just read. We pray, God, that you would give sight to us today. Lord, we, we were your mission. I was your mission. Everyone here watching online, we were your mission. And I just want to stop and thank you, God, that you opened our eyes, that because without you, our eyes would not be opened. Without you, we would be in darkness. So thank you, light of the world, that you've shown upon us so that we can arise and let our light shine. Father, I ask that every soul here, including myself, would be awakened to your truth. Your word is spirit and life. We pray for your spirit to move. We pray for your life to flow as we look at your word. Your word is spirit and life. We welcome you here. We thank you. You are here. In Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. The king of Syria was furious. He had been fighting against Israel, but once he felt threatened by the prophet Elisha, Elisha became the target of his anger. Syria's crosshairs were now on him. Here's what happened. I'm going to read from 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. So he, the king of, Assyri of Syria, sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city where Elisha was. When the servant of the man of God, the servant of the man of God's name was Gehazi, the man of God spoken of here is Elisha. Verse 15, he rose early, the servant of Elisha rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, or he saw an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. The city was surrounded. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Gehazi saw the people who were against him in this moment. He saw their intense anger, their numbers, their strength, and with good cause, he was afraid. He didn't know what to do, but Elisha saw a greater reality. If you read on in verse 16, it says, He, Elisha, said to Gehazi, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us 
are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his, Gehazi's eyes to see, that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. Not just horses and chariots, I love that, of fire. <laughs> One step up. All around Elisha. Verse 18, and when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Some of you may not have read it before, but it's amazing because all Gehazi saw was the threat of the enemy that surrounded him in that moment. But with an awareness of a greater reality, what did Elisha see? He saw the reality of the God of armies that surrounded that army. And Elisha opened up his mouth in realization of that reality, and he summoned the Lord's help, and the Lord came to his help. And in that moment, something happened. An intangible, invisible kingdom prevailed to overpower a physical, manifest kingdom of darkness. And a tangible, life-altering victory was won in that moment. If I can't see something, it's easy to doubt that it exists. Is it not? Out of sight, out of mind, right? But that doesn't make it any less real. Everything we don't see actually impacts everything we do see. I'll say that again. Everything we don't see impacts everything we do see. And this is not a new truth. In Hebrews 11, verse 3, it says that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things that are visible. Did you catch that? What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Not only was the universe created by an unseen God, but our new life in Christ was created by an unseen God, by the invisible. And this is how Jesus explained it to a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, which is unseen, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, even though we don't physically see that, it will, our, one day our faith will be sight, right? That's gonna, we're going to have a physical kingdom of God that's going to be on this earth. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is it with everyone who is born of the spirit. All of us who are born of the spirit have been born of something unseen. God has blown. You can't see the wind, but it has an impact, right? What Elisha encountered in 586 B.C., was no exception. Even while new life springs from an unseen reality, the destruction of life also springs from that same unseen reality. 
First Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It says, be sober-minded, be awake, because the devil is prowling, seeking for someone to devour. The unseen devil is prowling around whether we know it or not, whether we see it or not. So the conflict that Elisha encountered is no different than the conflicts that still happen today in one form or fashion. The conflict we see in 586 BC, we still see conflicts in 2020 AD, all around the world. Right now, in our country, our world, it's being torn apart by an unseen world. Our physical world is being torn apart by an unseen world. Do you realize that? There is one enemy, and he is at work everywhere. So the question is, like Gehazi, will we be distracted and overcome by the darkness that we see in the world, or will we shift our gaze upward to be overwhelmed with Jesus, the light of the world? That's the question. Know it or not, like it or not, you and me were born into a battle, whether we know it or like it or not. Every single individual, whether they know Jesus or not, from the moment they took their first breath, and even before that, have been born into a battle. It's an unconventional battle, for sure, but a very real battle nonetheless. If you're a Christian, you live in a foreign, hostile land, in fact. You lived in enemy territory. Peter refers to you as temporary residents and foreigners. That's the New Living Translation from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Foreigners, temporary residents and foreigners, aliens. We've been called to engage in something that we actually cannot avoid. Isn't it easier to avoid something that's difficult um, and just try to ignore it, put my head in the sand? But that doesn't make it go away. The question is not if we want to be in this unseen battle. That's not the question. We're already in it. The question is, will we fight? And if so, how will we fight? As many of you know, we're in a series called Access Points. Today we're going to look at something that often keeps us from accessing God's grace. Unfortunately, though, because it's out of sight, we easily overlook it. Or even worse, we underestimate it, the power of the unseen. Today we're going to look at spiritual warfare. 1 Peter 1.5, again, what it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Ephesians 5, 13-16 but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. We are called to be awake, alert. You know, 
when I wake up in the morning, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this, I wake up most days anyway, unless the kids come in. I wake up when the sun shines on my eyes, when the light hits my face. That's when I wake up. Otherwise, I'm in a dead sleep. But waking up in the morning is sometimes painful. Can anyone relate to that? <laughs> Where's my coffee, right? But once we're awake and we've had our coffee, that's really when life starts. If you have your Bible, flip over to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be spending the rest of our time in Ephesians 6 today. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You probably know the story. Everyone was afraid to fight Goliath except for one young boy. His foes, his friends, and even his family, his own brother mocked him, little David, for even trying to fight this giant. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 38, it says, Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword. This is New Living Translation, by the way. Um, strapped a sword over it and took a step or two to see what it was like. I love the way this, is, this flows. For he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. So Saul had this man-made arm, right? And he gave it to David thinking, it's going to fit. It's going to work. It's what David needs to fight this, this giant that he sees in front of him. But there was actually an unseen armor that actually was custom fit by God to David. The story continues. 1 Samuel 17, verse 41. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt of this ruddy-faced boy. Again, New Living Translation. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the heavens, of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the, de give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel." And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give it, he will give you to us. You know the rest of the story. David was able to do what he did because God was his armor. God was all David needed in that battle. Saul's armor didn't fit. 
but God's armor did. So this subject is one that I think it's often taboo. It's often hard to talk about. And uh, I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's by God's plan because it's in the Bible. But I have to ask the question, so why is it so important or even vital for us to now in 2020, AD, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, to put on his armor? Well, because we also face giants, unseen giants, but unlike, but like Goliath, our enemy despises us and he's stronger than us. Our enemy is stronger than us and he has far more experience. We're talking thousands of years on us. So for us to, to think that we could fight an enemy that's stronger and more experienced, it, it, will never, it will never work. We will never succeed at that. The other reason why it's so important that, it's, that we have God's armor is because we won't be able to stand against Satan. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. The purpose of the armor is so that we can stand, right? Against the schemes of the devil. David didn't just stand, like he charged his enemy. If you read the rest of the story, he ran at him, it says. David may have looked inexperienced, but he was constantly relying on God in the background prior to this point. In the mundane daily life, in 1 Samuel 17, it says Paul or Saul is, is mocking David. He says, don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. Verse 34 1 Samuel 17 says, but David persisted. He says, I have been taking care of my father's sheep, just his daily job and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with my club. I go after it and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears and I'll do this to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. I love that boldness. David had that boldness because it had been cultivated in his life. And when it time came time to fight, he was already ready at a moment's notice. He didn't have to figure out what to do in that moment. He knew in his heart that God was stronger than this enemy and that God could defeat this enemy without David even having to hardly do anything. I mean, to defeat this giant with rocks is, is laughable. Uh, anyone in law enforcement or the military, if you've been in law enforcement or the military, you know that the right time to put on your flak jacket or your armor is not in the middle of the battle. It's, it's not when the bullets are flying. It's too late. The time to strap on your gun is before the conflict begins, before it starts. If we don't prepare for battle in times of peace, that's what this is saying. If we don't prepare for battle in times of peace, we will get pummeled in times of war. If things are convenient and easy, and I use that time to, to, to kind of forget about God and not press into him, I'm gonna get blindsided every single time and I will not be able to stand. 
I will not be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy. If God's word has not permeated my heart in my off time, when it's time to stand, I won't even know what's happening. I won't even know what's, who's hitting me. I won't even realize it. I'll fall hard. Skip ahead to verse 13, Ephesians 6. It says, therefore take up the whole armor of God. He mentions the whole armor of God again. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So this is something that we do in preparation before the evil day comes. We've already prepared. We've already, the, the word uh, that's used here previously in verse 11, where it says, uh, or verse, yeah, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Put on means literally to sink into. Okay, I get that picture of David like trying to play around with Saul's armor when all the while he had already been God's armor had already sunk into him. God was already in him, right? But a different word is used here. It says, take up the whole armor. So, so the one is a, is a sink in to put on, like have it on, be ready, right? But the next verse, it's a different word. It says, take up the whole armor. Take up when it's time for action in the evil day. Take it up because it's right there. You're already ready. You know where to find it. You can access what you need in that time of conflict. It says to withstand in the evil day. Withstand who in the evil day? Obviously, we know who that is. At the end of verse 11, it says that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the unseen world. That is who we wrestle against as Christians. This is the Christian armor, right? The armor of God for believers. This is how we wrestle. This is how we fight. Uh, you know, it's interesting because if you rewind and if you've read Ephesians chapter 5, specifically starting in about verse 22, Paul's talking about human relationships. So that's the context. He's talking about relationships with husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants, employers and employees. That's the context. And then he says this word in verse 10, look back at it, finally. The word finally means the rest of the things that remain, according to Strong's. That's what the word means. The rest of the things that remain. Can we unpack that for a minute? Paul is basically saying what he's writing here, verses 10 and following that we're going to look at, that we're looking at today, says this is a continuation of a discussion about human relationships. And then he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He's instructing about how husbands should treat their wives, wives should their husband, parents, children, children, their parents, etc. But then he says this discussion about human relationships is incomplete. It's incomplete without remembering that we don't fight people. If Paul had left this out, the instruction about human relationships here would have been good, but it would not have been enough. 
because he says, finally, the things remain, that remain, the continuation of what I'm saying, it's, a, it's in this flow of the same thought. This reality is all over scripture, all over scripture, that we have an unseen enemy. The, the people around us, the enemy has, uses people, Christians, non-Christians alike, as decoys, right, for the real enemy. How many of you have, have gone duck hunting, right? You know about decoys, fake ducks, okay? And if you've gone, and if you're like me, you've probably not gotten anything. Uh, but Satan wants to distract us with decoys from the real enemy, which is himself, right? Think about it strategically. If you are on a battlefield and the enemy, if you can distract the fire away from yourself successfully, I would do it. Oh, yeah. I don't want the enemy firing at me. And that's exactly what he does. Many Christians I've talked to think that they can't be harassed or influenced by demons. It's very common in the church. But who is this armor for? Who is Paul writing to? Followers of Christ. And if there's no battle, why do I need armor? If my life is a a joy ride, and that's all it is, what do I need armor for? It's because my life is a battlefield. And if your life feels like a battlefield, it's because it is. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Look at verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. We are not safe from demonic attack as Christians. I want to say that loud and clear. We are not safe just because we're Christians from being attacked by Satan. Satan is called the accuser of who? The brethren. He's out to get us. He's out to get everyone. Satan has deceived many believers into believing that demons only harass unbelievers. There's a common misconception in the church that you will only get harassed if you're not walking close to the Lord. If I'm doing well, Satan's gonna leave me alone. It's only when I'm fallen into sin or I'm in perpetual, uh, perpetually walking away from God that I'm gonna get attacked. And that does happen, absolutely, because that's what it just said. Isn't that what it says? It says, don't sin so that you would not give opportunity to the devil. That's absolutely true. But, Will I get harassed by the enemy if I'm being a good Christian? If I was perfect, would I get harassed by Satan? Matthew chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus, who's perfect, was led up by the spirit into the wilderness, why? To be tempted by the devil. Jesus, who is perfect, was tempted by the devil, by God's leading. Jesus said this to Peter, one of his followers, Matthew 16, 23, but he turned, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you know the story behind that verse, you know that Peter, a follower of Jesus, was being used as a tool (laughs) an instrument of evil 
and not good in that moment. He was preventing the furtherance of God's kingdom because his thoughts and intents were self-centered. He had given place to the enemy. He had given power to the enemy. The enemy has no power unless you give it to him, unless I give it to him. But he was being used, Peter, a follower of Christ, as a tool for evil. That's exactly what Paul says happens when anyone isn't submitted to God for his work. Anyone, including Christians. Writing to Christians in Rome, Paul says this, Romans 6.13, do not present your members or your, your body, your, your arms, your legs, yourself, right? Do not present yourself to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, writing to Christians, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, because that's the reality. We've been brought from death to life, haven't we? Amen. And your members to God as instruments of what? Righteousness. So these things, this thing, this thing, these feet can be used as instruments as a follower of Christ of evil. James says, out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing, writing to Christians. And he says, these things ought not be, right? As Christians, we have the ability to be used of the enemy. An instrument literally means, according to Strong's, any tool or implement. It can also mean arms, arms used in warfare or weapons. Check that out. When Paul says, okay, do not present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. Further down. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons for righteousness. You are a human weapon. Did you know that? Whether you know Kung Fu or not, you're a human weapon. Of course, the devil can't make you do anything. To make that really clear, Satan can't make us do anything. The only power he has is the power we give him by our choices. Yet, yet he whispers. He schemes and tempts us with his, the word in verse 11, schemes that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes can mean cunning arts, deceit, craft, or trickery. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He tricks us. He tempts us to play for the wrong team. Have you ever played basketball and scored for the wrong team? <laughs> Why is no one cheering? I just scored, <laughs> right? He tempts us to play for the wrong team, which we can do in an instant. In one moment, we can be used of God, and the next moment, out of our mouth, with our hands, with our feet, with our lives, we can be used of the enemy. That is the sad reality that we live in. The devil's goal is to divide the church. He'd rather us aim at each other with friendly fire than aim at him. That's his goal. If he can get us to think that 
the people around me are my enemies, then I'm going to fight my enemies, right? But if I realize, because I have been saturated in the Lord, I've been walking in his presence like David did in the mundane daily life, I will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I will realize his trickery when it comes my way, and I will say, no, 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 no. This person in front of me, what they're doing right now? Jesus said to love your enemies. And in loving my enemies, I can break down more walls than I can with fighting with my enemies. There's only one enemy I am called to fight with, and he's an enemy that I can't see. But if the enemy can't get us to fight one another, that's fine. He'd at least like to get us, keep us incapacitated by self-inflicted wounds, fighting with ourselves. And he accomplishes this by doing something. He lies to us. He schemes in our ear individually about who we are. What does it say? I'm going to read it again. For we Christians do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I am flesh and blood. I do not wrestle against myself. I'm going to explain that further, so bear with me. We don't fight others, but we don't even fight ourselves, okay? Let me explain. You don't wrestle against you, and you don't wrestle against your old man. There is a wrestling, but it's not against your old man. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Did Christ die on the cross? with nails through his hands and his feet. He was dead in the, in the tomb. He died. And thankfully, he rose again. But it says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6 verse 6 says, we know that our old self was, past tense, crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Zip. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I want to say something. You are no longer enslaved to sin. If you know Jesus, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You aren't. You sin. I sin. But you are no longer its slave. You have a new master. You have a good master. Because the cruel master says in our ears and through the media and everywhere else, I'm your master. And that old guy, he's still alive. Do what he would do. That's who you are. That's who you are. You're mine still. But all he's got is freaking lies. Lies. That's all he, that comes from his mouth are lies. Lies. 
I'm getting angry. (laughs) I'm going to read what's around this verse, Romans 6, verse 6, because you have to see the context, the whole context. Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life, because we're new creations. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, like his, sorry, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. There, I'm just reading it again. Verse six, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has um, died, one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Happened once. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, one time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Here's the application. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore Let not sin, therefore, because you're a new creation, because the old man is dead, on that basis, do not let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey it, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Because of his grace, I am what I am. Because Christ has already put that old guy or gal to death. Dead means dead. There's no need for me to perpetually kill a cold corpse. Did you catch that? I can't do what Christ has already done. I don't need to put to death the old man. I've heard so many Christians say that. I gotta put to death the old man. Like, we, we have to talk about this right, correctly. If we don't, we get dangerously close to works-based salvation. I, I can't put to death someone's are, someone that our Christ has already killed. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. He's alive in me. The, the, the word um, being a new creation in Christ in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, I believe. I think it's verse 17. A new creation, it's, it's like the word is prototype. Like something that has never been created before, a brand new thing. So complete was the work of the cross that Christ didn't just pretty us up. He made us new. And my apologies, guys, if you already know this, but this is the gospel. This is the good news, and I have to share it because I forget it. 
Man, what Jesus did is so much greater than we could ever fully see in this life. As a new creation in Christ, we have his spiritual DNA because we have him. He lives in us. We're one with him. God's word calls us saints over and over again. Never once, if you're in Christ, are you called a sinner? Again, I have heard so many people say, I'm a sinner. Where did that thought come from? It didn't come from God's mouth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses the Corinthians this way. He says, to the church of God, verse 2, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Have you ever, if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, these guys were not exactly model Christians. Like guys sleeping with their mother-in-law, coming to communion drunk. I mean, crazy stuff. And call, Paul calls them saints? Ephesians 1, verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Paul addresses believers in the, in the same way in 2 Corinthians. He does it again. Saints, Philippians, saints, Colossians, saints. Never once are we called sinners once we're in Christ. We have the tendency to let how we feel about ourselves dictate who we dictate who we think we are or should be. When in fact God says we're someone different. Just because I feel bad about what I've done does not change my standing with God, does not change my identity. As saints, do we still sin? Yeah, of course. Are, to we, are we to still put to death, though, the desires, right, that Satan whispers in our ear and stirs up like he did with Eve? Eve, who had no sin at that point, she had not sinned. He says, eh, you don't need to listen to God. Eve was tempted to sin even though she was not a sinner at that point. I can be tempted to sin at any point in time by Satan. That's what he's been doing from the beginning. Colossians 3.5 says to, we are to put to death these desires, but I am not to put to death a being that is already in the grave, okay? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So even though we don't wrestle against others, we don't wrestle against ourselves, we actually do wrestle. We are called to wrestle. It's easy to think that, you know what? God has got this, and he does. He's got it. It says, be strong in the Lord. But it also says that we wrestle. The word wrestle, it's, it's, it means a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other and which is decided when the victor is able to hold his opponent down with his hand upon his neck. That's what Strong says. That's what wrestle. It's this, it's this violent uh, picture. I almost get it, the picture of like cage fighting. I mean, this is an all-out wrestling that we are called to do against 
Who? Verse 12, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I am called to wrestle, but I'm to do it in God's strength. So like it or not, we're in a daily cosmic conflict and armed with clarity about who we should and shouldn't be fighting, what next? I'd like to get practical because God's word gets practical at this point. How is it we fight an unseen enemy the right way? Practically, how can we be strong in the Lord? Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to war against an invisible enemy? What does that look like? 2 Corinthians 3, uh, chapter 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. New King James. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or they're not physical. They're not of the flesh. Okay, so our weapons, we know that they're not physical. Like I'm not going to do what Peter did and pick up a sword and chop somebody's ear off. That's not the kind of weapons we're talking about. But the weapons we do have, verse 4, Four says, but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Verse five, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What Satan does is he whispers a different gospel. He says, he teaches us a lie that exalts itself above the highest one, okay? So it is our job to pull him down and put him in his place. And we say, no, that's not true. And I mean say it like out loud. I have to say it. I need to say the truth of God. I need to speak his word. It says, put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, for for this purpose, Paul says, to pray, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Right? Is, is, Is there any accident that he says pray for the saints? In a discussion that he just, a teaching, if you will, about human relationships, right? He says pray for the saints. Pray for one another, because we all need it. I know I need it. And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So there's, there's, I'm going to, we're going to go through these fairly quickly, but the weapon number one is, is identity. Okay, here he speaks of the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate being that protects our heart, right? Um, uh, in, in the book of uh, Proverbs, it says, protect or guard your heart for from it flow the issues of life. Everything comes from your heart. So we gotta protect our heart. But, but our heart is protected 
if you will, by, by the breastplate of righteousness. It also talks about the helmet of salvation for our head, for our minds. So the question is, if in Jesus, we've already become righteousness, right? It, it says, we have become the righteousness of God in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And, and aren't we already saved? Like, aren't these things that we already have? We already own them, they're already ours, right? Salvation, righteousness, how can I take up what I already have? That's exactly what access points that we're talking about is all about. Like, it's, it's already in that gerbil water feeder, as Sam talked about. It's a beautiful metaphor, beautiful picture. The, the animal just has to come up and, and take a drink. It's sitting right there just waiting to be tapped into, right? So what we do it, it, we, by taking up the full armor of God in this sense is we simply remember what we've forgotten. So Paul says, take up or remember what you've forgotten. Remember your identity. You're saved. You're righteous. Remember who you are. Remembering our true identity in Jesus as righteous as saved is our first line of defense. If we, if we don't get past that, we're, we're not gonna be effective in warfare. And, and so many sadly uh, get kind of hung up in this area and kind of get stuck, if you will, on the wrong side of the cross. Um, but it's only in their mind, not in God's mind. The, the thought process goes something like this, I did it again, I sinned, I must be a sinner, I'm not saved. How many Christians have had those thoughts? I say those thoughts came from the accuser of the brethren because I don't see him here. He says, I just got to pick up what's already mine. Just pick it up. It's right there. This is a battle of the mind that we're in. The weapons of our warfare are not carmel. Set, uh, Colossians 3 says to set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The second weapon is reality. It says verse 14, the belt of truth. Belt of tr truth here can mean just what's real, the re reality of things. So how many times, I mean, have, have, has a thought come into my mind? And it's like 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it says we are destroying, in the New American Standard, we are destroying speculations in every lofty thing, taking every thought captive, okay? So in the moment when I'm being attacked by the enemy, I have to stop and realize what's real. Like, these thoughts I have, is, is that person, are they actually against me? It doesn't matter if they are, because they only have one enemy, but, but are these thoughts true? Oh, they looked at me the wrong way. Oh, they're mad at me. That's a speculation, speculating about what could be. We're to, we're to cast those things down. It also speaks of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In the moment, even if we know, we come to, we come to the Lord like David came, he came to God in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Reality. God, is there a reality of sin in my life right now? Am I walking in sin? And, and the point of that, 
The point of that is not to wallow in my sin, to stay there, but to quickly be free of it. To quickly just realize that reality. What's true? What's true here? Oh man, I, I've given place to the enemy. That's sometimes the case. And to repent, man, repent that times of refreshment might come from the Spirit of God, the book of access. Man, God's, when we repent, when we humble ourselves before God, James says, man, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. His grace, his spirit comes rushing in when we humble ourselves. And he comes to our aid. He comes to help us. The next thing we're to do is to use the spirit as a sword against the enemy. We're to recite, not only realize what's real, but to recite what's true. This is exactly what Jesus did. He went into the, to the, to the desert to be tempted by the devil. And then in verse, uh, starting verse eight of Matthew four, what does it say? It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan came with a lie, what was not reality. Jesus spoke truth. He recited truth. And then he resisted Satan. You see that? He spoke to him. And he told him to leave. He said, get away from me. Leave me, Satan. And you see Jesus right after this coming out of the power and in the power of the spirit of God. In Luke chapter four, it says he came out of this time of testing. And what does he go do? He starts casting out demons from people. He says, Satan, leave me. And then he goes, practices that and does that for other people, right? People who are actually... Um, who had, had fully given themselves over. Jesus being harassed, they'd been possessed, right? And he's like, get away from them. The weapon number three is faith. It says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, verse 16. What is faith? Is faith just believing something in my mind? Is faith something I believe? Yes, that's part of it. But James chapter two says, verse 19, you believe that there is one God you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But, you, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Works don't save us, but works show that we have faith in God. Hebrews 11 verse eight says, by faith Abraham did what? Obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that, was, that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out. He, he went. He moved his feet, not knowing where he was going. Real faith is more than just believing. Real faith has feet. Faith is doing. To take up the shield of faith is not to just know God's truth. It's to do God's truth. And that's when I extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. Something happens when I do that. It says, with which, the shield of faith, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. There's a reality that we need to be aware of. When I desire to live godly, when I step out in faith, when I go and, and do something that's gonna advance the kingdom of God, I'm gonna draw the fire of the enemy. How many of you have experienced that? When you, when you desire to live godly, I think Peter says it, that, that 
all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. So when, when we desire to do what's right, we are gonna draw the fire of the enemy. But something interesting happens. As we draw the fire of the enemy, as we step out in faith, that same action of faith that draws the fire actually repels it. Your defense is your obedience, okay? The armor of God is you obeying God. That's part of it. The same faith that attracted the fire will also repel it. Weapon number four, the gospel. Verse 15, as shoes for your feet, it's no mistake that verse 15 and verse 16 are together, I believe. Right? Faith is, is, is moving, doing something, right? Acting, saying, I believe you, God, therefore I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to show that I trust you by stepping out. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Isaiah 52, 7 says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Whose feet brought good news? Jesus who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Again, real faith is more than just believing. Real faith has feet. Jesus put his faith into action. He gave us an example, the perfect example of faith. He's like, I'm not just gonna sit up in heaven. I'm gonna come and I'm gonna, I'm gonna show God through my life through my words. Weapon number five, which I don't know if I've heard this very often included as, bar, as being a weapon in this passage. Some teachings uh, stop uh, at verse 17, basically in terms of the armor of God, but I, I firmly believe that prayer is a very, very powerful weapon against the enemy. Verse 18 through 20 says, I'm just gonna kind of summarize somebody here, praying at all times to that end for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening of my mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So you see prayer tied in with faith, right? It takes faith to pray to an unseen God, tied in with taking the gospel, right? So if faith is the feet to go, then prayer is the fuel to go. I can't go take something to anyone unless God is helping me. And God helps me through faith. I come in weakness with boldness like we talked about a couple of weeks ago and I find help from God in my weakness through faith, in prayer. Prayer is how I get God's help. If faith is the feet to go, prayer is the fuel to go. Prayer for myself, prayer for others. So we're not gonna get much into, into prayer today because we are running out of time. But I, we did, again, I taught on prayer two weeks ago. If you wanna um, you know, watch that sermon, you can. Uh, but we're not gonna go into that uh, too much today. Regardless, it's, it's, it's very, very important. So I'm gonna close with this, a, a story about um, a neighbor of ours. Um, my wife, uh, she had it in her heart to, to bake some scones. They were the most amazing scones I had ever had. Uh, some brownies, amazing. Um, and, and she wanted to make them for our neighbors. 
Um, it's when, about the time when we had just moved to Grants Pass, we didn't know any of our neighbors. We thought, what a great opportunity to go and just give them something and say hi and introduce ourselves. So we started going through the neighborhood and, and passing out these scones um, and, and, and brownies. And there was one neighbor in particular who really stood out to us. Um, we were talking to him right across the street from us, going through some really, really painful things. And um, on all levels, I mean, the guy was just going through it. I, I, I almost couldn't believe it. And, and our heart just really went out to him. And um, when we went home that day, my wife began to pray for me. She said, she prayed that I would, um, I'm actually gonna read from my prayer journal. She prayed for opportunities to serve, show God's love, and for Matt to establish a relationship with this neighbor. She prayed that for me. Um, and, and ever since that, uh, you know, she prayed, I had this desire in my heart that I needed to go across the street to this guy. I needed to, to you know, take that, take some action. But, oh man, I drug my feet for weeks. And, and partially, I just didn't know what to do. Like, it's just awkward. I don't know this guy. I'm just going to go over and say, hi. You know, I, I just didn't know what to do. I just, it was the awkward, the thought of how awkward it would potentially be. And, uh, you know, putting my, my foot in my mouth or whatever, I, it just kept me from doing anything. But God knew that. And about literally five weeks later, it took me five weeks. This is just embarrassing. And I didn't do it on my own. But about five weeks later, one day out of nowhere, <laughs> if your parents, you won't judge me, okay? <laughs> like all of our kids, I love my kids. They're here. I love my kids. All of my kids were just all of a sudden in this like, they're all like angry and frenzied and fighting and like just whipped up into this. I'm like, it just kept lasting and going on and on. It was just like chaos in our house. And I'm like, what is happening? And, and, and in the middle of it, I had literally been thinking to myself, just heavier and heavier. It's like, God's been, you know, telling you to go across the street. And you're not going. And, and it's like, this is heavy on my heart. And in the middle of all this, I'm just getting so discouraged. I'm like, what a loser father I am. Like, <laughs> I mean, if I was a better dad, like my kids wouldn't be getting, getting crazy. And, and in the moment I was feeling like my kids were the enemy. I really was. I was just getting frustrated and angry. But then the Holy Spirit gently reminded me of something. They're not your enemies. There's something happening here. And the oddest thing happened. His timing is not my timing. He said, I want you to go across the street. Now's the time. In the middle of all this chaos, now's the time to go across the street. And I was like, this is not the right time. This is actually not, this is like the worst time to go across the street. Like my kids need me, you know, kind of thing. So literally, in, in the middle of my like, knowing he wanted me to do something and not doing it, I, I'm just fearful, right? I'm just anxious. I'm sweating, right? And, I, and I'm just sitting here for literally like 45 minutes in front of the TV, like wasting time. My kids are watching like, like Little House on the Prairie or something. I'm like, I don't even, I mean, it's a great show and all, but like, you know, but okay. But uh, anyway, I'm like, I'm not really into this show. And I'm, but yeah, I'm watching. I'm just doing anything to avoid what God wants me to do. 
I'm just literally like 45 minutes sitting there dealing with these intense mental arguments in my head. Every reason imaginable why I shouldn't go across the street. Oh, it's okay, you know, like you need, your kids need you and, and you're a loser anyway and <laughs> God can't do anything through you. What's the point? But in the middle of it all, I'm, I'm sitting in my chair. I finally went from the TV to my chair in my bedroom and I am like, like bent over like this and I'm like, oh, just like panic attack or something. And it was bad. My wife comes in. She's like, are you okay, honey? I'm like, no. <laughs> Can I pray for you? I'm like, yes, please. So she prays for me and, and then she left and I'm sitting there and I'm just staring at the wall and I'm just like so despondent, just like, Dude, what a failure. 45 minutes, I'm still not obeying God. Five weeks later, I still haven't obeyed. My kids are doing this. Just like low, right? And in that moment, God spoke to me with his words. I couldn't, I was like glued to that chair. It was like my legs were lead in my shoes. And he said, son, I heard him as clear as day, son, it's time. And when I heard that, I just sprung up. I just needed that nudge. When I was weak, at the right time, he reminded me who I was. He called me son. When God speaks to me, most of the time he says son first, and then he'll say something. And he doesn't waste his words, by the way. I know when he's speaking, it's like, like okay. And, that's pretty clear. Son, it's time or it's time to go. So without realizing it at the time, but looking back, he had helped me put on my, arm, my, my helmet of salvation, put on my breastplate of righteousness. In the middle of all that, I picked up my feet, I grabbed my shield of faith, and I started across the street with a determination in my heart for this man that came from God. But it was directed against the enemy, what he was doing in my family, what he does to blind people who don't know him, and even those who do. And as the fiery darts flew at me, I noticed I was getting more and more fired up. My feet were ready to go and share the good news of Jesus because he made me ready. He helped me in that moment. So I came up to the door and as my neighbor opens the door, he just hangs, he hangs up the phone. I'm like, hey, I'm not gonna say his name. How's it going? He's like, oh, hey man. Um, yeah, I just got off the phone. I just got some pretty bad news. Like just moments before I walked up to the door. Um, he's like, my new grandson that was just born, he's born, he's in a coma. He's got blood that's filling his lungs. And this is like just the tip of the iceberg for what this guy was going through. So, so at that point, I'm, I'm just listening to him. I'm just like, all of a sudden, like God's reminding me, 
you drug your feet for five weeks, but in my sovereignty, like my timing is still perfect. You couldn't stop what I wanted to do. Perfect timing. I show up, this guy's like hurting and need, he needs God in this moment. So I just began to talk to him and listen to him. I said, hey man, um, if you're in the middle of something, I, you wanna hang out and talk? Sure, man. We go over and sit down. We talked for like an hour and a half. Just mostly him, I just listened to him. Heard about all the stuff he was going through, the pain he physically was in, his grandson, how his family had rejected him, how they were selling the house out from under him, behind his back, like all kinds of stuff. His brother, ready to die. His best, he just found out one of his best friends was, was, had just died like a week before. This guy was just going through it. Um, so I'm listening to him, and, and in that time, I literally got to share the gospel with this guy like three to four different ways just kind of weaving it in, telling him stories from me and my kids and our own life and incorporating God's love and reality in that, telling him about hell, the reality of hell and just how much God loved him. Um, and, and I'm just gonna read from my prayer journal entry here. God used the most intense spiritual attack that we had encountered since we moved to Grants Pass to push me to take the fight back to the enemy. In fear, but faith and obedience, I went across the street to share and show Jesus with this neighbor. I witnessed a testament to God's power, love, and perfect timing with someone who desperately needed to hear Jesus' words and see his love. I talked to him for one and a half hours and got uh, to share the gospel like three to four different ways. I already said that, of course. It feels like God orchestrated an instant relationship and a bond with this guy. I also prayed for healing, for his baby grandson who was in a coma due to blood in his lungs. So I just, in the moment, I just fed, I said, hey, can we stop? I'm just gonna pray for your grandson that God would just heal him. So I did. So as I found out later, the very next day, th this little boy, this little infant was in a coma. It looked like he was gonna die. This neighbor told me later that be, they, the doctors began to see improvement the very next day. Within about a week or less, I'm gonna read from my prayer journal again. And since I prayed God, um, prayed to God, God has continued to heal him, this grandson. He is out of the coma now, this is about a week later, with no brain issues no brain damage, he's nursing now, his blood pressure is back to normal, et cetera, et cetera. It's a total miracle is what I wrote. With tears in my eyes, so later on the, this neighbor came over to our house, with tears in his eyes, he said to me, Matt, I saw Jesus in that room. I don't know exactly what he meant or what he saw, but he said, Matt, I saw Jesus in that room. And this is a guy who told me in the course of conversation about Jesus, he goes, before we really got into the Lord much, he said, I believe in spiritual stuff like spirit, spirit, spiritism and, and new age religion, stuff like that. Um, he, had, he had spent a lot of time with a, basically a fortune teller, a psychic. And that's what this guy believed. And out of his mouth, he says, Matt, I saw Jesus in that room. So God worked the impossible through the imperfect, 
me. And like Elisha, my wife prayed and to access God's help, to get something moving in motion, which God did. And despite my fear and slowness to obey, God still sovereignly orchestrated everything down to the minute. At the point I stood and walked with him in his strength of his might, he opened my eyes and moved my sluggish feet to take the good news to someone in desperate need of it. And in the process, like Elisha, like Gehazi, a manifestation of an unseen kingdom broke through into the visible to break down walls in a hurting man's heart. The intangible, invisible kingdom of light had invaded the kingdom of darkness in a little boy's body all for the purpose of drawing an old man's heart one beat closer to Jesus. The reason why God has commissioned us to this is that we would be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might that we would put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for opening my eyes so many times from day one to day now. <laughs> and I thank you for doing that for each of us so graciously. I thank you for moving and working even when we're weak, even when we don't even know where we're walking. You light the way. You light of life. Thank you so much, Jesus, for coming. Thank you that when we are weak, you're strong. I thank you, God, that you are our armor. Help us, God, just simply Put it on. Help us simply pick it up. In Jesus' name, amen.